I'm always a skeptic when I hear, you know, government claims about, oh, we're, we've done a great job saving money. We, in the report that we did, we tried to look at what was the record of the, the MRT, and it turned out to be pretty impressive. They had not only, in the first three, four years of the program, they had not only slowed the growth, they had actually brought that per enrollee cost down, which is a pretty substantial accomplishment. And so they were able to live within the cap, despite the fact, because that's a dollar cap, that enrollment was growing. So you were taking care of more people for a constrained amount of money. So it was a pretty impressive job in the beginning. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here today. We're excited about today's episode and other great guests we're lining up for 2018 as we dig deeper into both city and state budget season and a whole bunch of other topics. We're hoping to talk some more soon, not only about the city and state budget processes and key items to watch there, but also what's happening, of course, with the MPA and congestion pricing and all sorts of key topics. So stay tuned. Make sure that you're subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and that you're sharing What's the data point with friends and colleagues and others? So for today's episode of What's the Data Point, we are joined by Charles Brescher, CBC's Senior Advisor for Health Policy. Previously, Chuck served as the Commission's Research Director for more than 30 years. Welcome, Chuck. Thanks. Pleasure to be with you. And so before we get to today's data point, let's talk quickly for a minute about some Um, breaking news of sorts. There's a deal coming together potentially as we talk here on Thursday morning in Washington, D.C. that has major, major implications for New York. Um, We don't know exactly what the fate of the bill uh, is going to be in the Senate. We don't know exactly what the fate is going to be in the House, but it looks like they're coming together. A couple key takeaways for New York. Well, the, the extension has a number of important features to it. It Up in the air has been funding for the Child Health Insurance Program, CHIP, uh, funding for community health centers. Those things seem to be in it and get extended, uh, positive things for New York. Um, people have been concerned about what's called DISH money, the disproportionate share hospital money, which as part of the Affordable Care Act was supposed to be phased down and phased out. That phase-out has been extended in recent years, or postponed, I guess is the best way to characterize it. Um, There is apparently another postponement in that, which is important for New York State at several hundred million dollars. Um, The bad news appears to be there's a a pot of money called the cost-sharing reductions, which New York and Minnesota, the only two states that have done this, have used that money to fund a health insurance policy for people who are just above the Medicaid cutoff or don't qualify uh, because of their immigration status. We have about 700,000 people in New York on that plan, which is called the Essential Plan. The funding for that apparently is not in there. So that would mean the governor has said he's committed to continuing the program. To do that will require a few hundred million bucks in state money. And so... Again, we should stress that this is not a final deal as we talk here today in Washington, but it looks like they have something coming together to um, extend some of these key programs uh, and funding for them that New York relies on quite a bit, but also uh, potentially some money that Governor Cuomo is going to have to figure out making up. So we'll keep an eye on that. 
Um, but overall, it seems like a fairly good picture in the deal for some of those yeah. healthcare related funding aspects of um, a federal budget. Extender. Yeah, for a couple of very important items, you know, the, the, the CHIP, the community health centers, um, it what was at risk and could have been pretty bad news uh, seems not to be happening. Yeah. All right, so we'll keep an eye on that, and we're going to continue to talk New York health care and health policy and health funding here today, and for our data point, Maria. $72.4 billion, total spending on New York's Medicaid program under Governor Andrew Cuomo's proposed budget for state fiscal year 2019. Medicaid is a joint federal-state program established to provide health services to low-income individuals, families, and people with disabilities. In New York, the program is unique because local governments also contribute a significant, though declining, share of funding. Medicaid comprises approximately 40% of New York's all-funds budget. New York's program has long been one of the most generous in terms of eligibility and coverage and one of the most expensive on a per-enrollee basis. Medicaid was also one of the most rapidly growing costs in state government for a very long time. In 2011, the governor established the Medicaid redesign team, known as the MRT, to slow the growth in Medicaid spending and begin to bend the cost curve on health costs. The state share of Medicaid under the Department of Health was placed under a cap, which is set at the 10-year average of the medical component of inflation. Unlike the cap on school aid, the state sticks to this one, and this year the growth is 3.2%. CBC issued a report in 2016 analyzing the performance of the MRT and describing the challenges it will face for continuing cost control. Here to tell us more about Medicaid successes and challenges of the MRT, and more about the potential impact of federal policy changes on Medicaid spending is Chuck Brusher. Thank you for joining us. So um, there's a lot there. Uh, Medicaid is obviously this enormous portion of the state budget. Um, As Maria said, today's data point, $72.4 billion uh, is the total Medicaid program under Governor Cuomo's proposed budget for fiscal 2019, which begins April 1, and they're negotiating the state budget in Albany uh, as we speak, or they're getting ready to negotiate it uh, as they do towards the later end of the window. So the basics. Um, The governor has tried to impose some real fiscal discipline on the budget, particularly in his first term, uh, as we're now in the end of his second term, and a major area of focus was Medicaid. Why is Medicaid such a large expense in the state budget, and why is it important to get those costs under control? Well, I think, as Maria said in the background, uh, it's a big item for New York. It's a big item in most state budgets, but it's particularly big in New York because we have a relatively generous program, and we cover over 6 million people now. Um, The states have some flexibility in who they can cover. It's... uh, sort of mandated to cover people who are receiving public assistance, benefits, and supplemental security income, but you can cover people above, and and others, you can cover people further above the federal poverty level. New York has always pretty much run a maximum eligibility program. We've also run, uh, run a program in which we pay the providers of services, the hospitals, the clinics, to a lesser extent, individual doctors, um, re- generously relative to other states. Um, Medicaid has, has, is known in a lot of states as a bad payer. You know, it, the rates are less than what private insurance might pay. Um, in New York, we've been relatively generous, and we pr- provide pretty good payment rates to most of the, particularly the institutions for Medicaid people. So you combine um, a large number of people who are eligible with 
um, some might say generous, others would say fair, uh, payment rates under the program, and you get a pretty expensive program. And so one of the important things that the governor attempted to tackle, I mean, how would you describe it? How did the governor do with with tackling and reforming those costs that, correct me if I'm wrong, were, were widely seen as pretty out yeah. of control? Yeah, they, they were rapidly growing. Um, the response was um, what has come to be known as the Medicaid redesign team, or MRT. Initially, when, it, when the governor first came in, he knew this was going to be a politically explosive campaign. Uh, other governors had run into opposition from both the hospital industry, which is quite powerful politically, as well as the hospital workers' unions, which are also powerful politically. But hospital board members are often political contributors. If things are going to hurt the institutions, they let people know. Uh, so politically, it's been very rough to do cost containment. What they did in creating this Medicaid redesign team was to bring the stakeholders together, get some buy-in from them for some of the strategies that they were going to pursue. And what they did was to say, we're going to rely more heavily on managed care. That's been one of the core strategies. Um, and what is managed care for the uninitiated? Okay. <laughs> managed care is, you know, what, what used to be called the health maintenance organization. It's basically a, an insurance company that agrees to take a fixed payment for a member and provide them with a package of services. Um, and so the notion is that, that these managed care plans have a financial incentive to live within the rate that they get for this package of services and control people's utilization so you don't get unnecessary utilization when you have a managed care plan. Um, so th that was one of the designs. They were going to mandate managed care for more people. Historically, the state had mandated it for some, but had let others stay in a fee-for-service system if they wanted. They were going to expand who was going to be required to be in managed care because you Basically, you have to mandate it. People don't raise their hand and say, yes, I'd like to go to managed care when they could stay and choose whoever they want and use whenever they want. Um, so they mandated it for a broader uh, set of the eligible population, the income eligible population. Um, and they also expanded the range of services that were included in that fixed rate that they gave to the insurance company. So they started to put drugs in blend some of the mental health services, those things had been outside before. So you got more people in managed care and managed care covering more services. The, the goal is to get the benefits of the managed care financial incentives to be multiplied because you've expanded it in those two ways. And so the progress um, that, that was made, how would you characterize, you know, what, what kind of not, I don't, you don't need to give a grade, but what kind of, you know, characterization would you, would you In the early years, I think you have to give them a very high mark. As I said, they dealt with some of the politics of this very skillfully, and they got results. Um, I, I'm always a skeptic when I hear, you know, government claims about, oh, we're, we've done a great job saving money. We, in the report that Maria referred to that we did, we tried to look at what was the record of the, the MRT, and it turned out to be pretty impressive. Um, they, they got a key indicator is how much you spend per person enrolled in the program. And when you do that, you have to distinguish between the very different kinds of people who are in there because there are people who are elderly, there are people who are disabled, there are adults and there are children. And many of the kids are pretty healthy and don't cost a lot of money, um, whereas an elderly person 
can cost you a lot of money uh, in the program, particularly if they're getting long-term care services. So we looked at it based on per enrollee by different categories of enrollees. And they had not only, in the first three, four years of the program, they had not only slowed the growth, they had actually brought that per enrollee cost down, um, which is a pretty substantial accomplishment. And so they were able to live within the cap that Maria referred to, despite the fact, because that's a dollar cap, that enrollment was growing. So you were taking care of more people for a constrained amount of money. So it was a pretty impressive job in the beginning. Yeah, so just to provide some more context here, I mean, the MRT started in 2011, Mm -hmm. Governor Cuomo's first term, one of his early initiatives in the budget, and there was a sense, of course, that the state was reeling uh, after the financial crisis and Medicaid as such a large expenditure, and the budget really had to be... um, gotten under control because costs had been, you know, doubling and tripling over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, And to place, you know, more context around the numbers, Chuck Chuck is talking about what controlling these per-enrollee costs, which is really the right way to to think about it, um, you know, these costs in New York are higher than they are in the nation. Um, and the most recent numbers available for the disabled, which is probably the most costly to provide care, it's you know thirty thousand dollars an individual. Um, for the aged, it's more than twenty thousand. Children and adults, you know, better better rates, still more costly than than the nation. So it's really um, the the impact of controlling this these costs has, has been really powerful for the state's budget. And, and for those who want to take a closer look at some of the numbers, um, CBC has a a post um, from 2016, Facts About Medicaid in New York. Mm-hmm. You can Google that and, and see some really clear data, graphs, charts, et cetera, that help help show uh, some of those numbers very clearly that we're talking about here. So one thing people, you know, cost control is often seen as a euphemism for diminished quality or diminished service. Would you say that, that, that that's happened here? Um, no. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's been the opposite. Uh, one of the interesting things when we looked at the experience in the first several years of the program, uh, New York started out being not only very expensive in terms of per enrollee costs, but having low quality, really. It wasn't like we were getting the best medical services for Medicaid people as a result of spending more money. We were getting mediocre services. The Commonwealth Fund does a national survey of state health systems and ranks their quality. Um, just before 2011, the most recent survey, we were somewhere in the middle. We were 20-something among states in, in a variety of measures. Several years in, when they did it again, um, we had gone up, and I think we're now number 12 or something among the states. So you see, we've seen improvement in quality at the same time that we've seen pretty rigorous cost controls. So no, saving money can actually be associated with improved care. It means you're making the system work better. And we want to ask um, how the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, you know, comes into play here. But first, um, is what has happened with Medicaid, um, is it over? You know, are the are state reforms over? Is there a new frontier that you think should be taken on? Yeah. And if so, is that even on the table? Or did Governor Cuomo sort of tackle this and now he's done with it? No, I think it's far from over. Uh, what we've seen is some early accomplishments. You could 
it's not quite fair to say they picked the low-hanging fruit, but they certainly did some of the more powerful and easier to implement things in the beginning. They did just, they, they reduced some rates, they put limits on certain services, personal care, which a lot of people were getting round-the-clock personal care, elderly people, they, re they reduced those hours that are available when they weren't uh, necessarily needed uh, in, in all of the cases where people were getting that service. The longer-term things, which are still being implemented, and what we at CBC are focusing on as the things to track that will make a difference but are much harder to implement. And, um, you know, those are, uh, first of all, expanding managed care to the, the population that isn't in it yet, which is mostly people who are referred to as the dual eligibles. They're people who are on both Medicaid and Medicare. They're elderly people. They often are expensive. Um, the Medicare program says you can't mandate managed care. Um, there are certain exceptions and, and waivers, but basically people who are duly eligible can't be mandated to be enrolled in a managed care plan. So the state has been trying to devise things that will be attractive, set up incentives, and get particularly more expensive um, elderly people or disabled people can also be on Medicare um, into these um, managed care plans, which are everything has an acronym in healthcare, you know, so the acronym for this is FIDA, uh, F-I-D-A, which is Fully Integrated Dual Advantage Programs, um, which means you fully integrate long-term care, acute care under Medicaid and Medicare, and you put it into a package, which in, under the Medicaid program, we call these uh, Advantage Programs. Um, yeah. And, and when you look at how the the state is approaching these things, are are any of these discussions happening for further reforms? Uh, yes, uh, the, the the MRT has identified these strategies. The one one I mentioned a little bit here, the getting more people, the dual, the eligible into it. The other thing they're trying to do is change around the way in which the uh, healthcare system is organized, so that people work together better. Um, again, particularly for people who have multiple conditions, and if one of those conditions is psychiatric and there's mental illness combined with physical illness, it can often be very difficult for the patient to relate to all of the providers they have to to show up on time at places they have to show up. Um, so there's been an effort to make the delivery system work better, particularly for people who have multiple problems. And the, the two things that the state has been doing on this, or two notable things, are one is this trying to create what are called performing provider systems, PPSs, which are an effort to have the big teaching institutions work with community-based organizations and other providers to make the system work better. So that's one effort, these 25 PPSs, and they've gotten federal money for that under a waiver. The other is a program that's called Health Homes, um, which is really a program that identifies agencies who are good at managing and coordinating care for people and says, we'll pay you to watch these people, engage them, and make sure that they do everything they're supposed to do in terms of adhering to medications, showing up at appointments, not misusing emergency rooms, and that that will give them both better care and save money. That's the, the predicate of it. These both things have been very hard to implement and have been going slowly. Um, well, is New York pioneering the way here? Is there sort of best practice around these that it's seeking to emulate? Um, well, how, how would um, you characterize where? 
I, I would say if we're not pioneering, we're certainly trying to build on what's been learned by some other people. And because New York is so big and our problems have been so great, particularly in terms of cost, the ambition of the programs is greater than in most other places. Uh, and, you know, to the credit of the MRT, and, and it's been led by Jason Helgerson, um, who's really taken over the leadership of this and I think deserves a lot of credit for what's, what's been happening. Um, so, but anyway, the, the, both the creation of these PPSs, Performing Provider Systems, and the implementation of the Health Home Program have been difficult, and particularly the Health Home Program. Originally, they thought they would get about 240,000 out of the 6 million people getting this specialized coordinated care. They've really only been able to engage just over half that number. So the reaching out and actually managing the care for these people is, is very difficult, and it's taking longer than um, was initially thought. And so Maria mentioned in, in explaining today's data point that New York is, is fairly unique because local governments contribute a significant share uh, of Medicaid funding. I remember, as others I'm sure at this table do, uh, a couple years ago when the governor tried to really shift a lot more of that cost to New York City um, and seems to have been looking for ways to get the state's you know, responsibility on these payments even, even lower. Um, what is your or the CBC take on that, and <laughs> yeah. where, where does any of that stand? Yeah, um, you mentioned in the introduction that I've been research director at CBC for about 30 <laughs> years. I think from day one, one of the issues that CBC has taken up is this local share of, of Medicaid, which is a very, New York State is unique in having such a, such a large local share, and it's a very unfair way to pay for the program. It basically says, the more poor people who live near you, the higher your taxes are going to be, which doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We should be spreading the burden equally around the state, the non-federal portion of the state. The federal government pays for about half of Medicaid. The rest of it is supposed to be paid for by, by the state, and in most places the state does it. New York has said, no, we're going to make New York City and the counties pay for this. Since New York City has about two-thirds of the Medicaid enrollees, we pay a big share of, of it through local taxes. That didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So th there's been an argument for decades now since the start of the program that the local share should be less. Um, there's been progress. And the governor wanted to be more. Well, the, the, uh, every governor. It's this governor story. proposed yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, if you go back, the, 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 the greatest progress that was made on this was made under the first governor, Cuomo, who mm -hmm. recognized that this was um, not a good way to do it. The state couldn't all of a sudden pick up the billions of dollars that the localities were providing. But they did phase it in. They started to pay more for the long-term care services of it. And then, uh, more recently, there was a, a freeze put on the local share so that you, it didn't automatically go up when spending went up. It said, we'll cap you at a certain rate. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been pretty effective, and each year it yields some savings from what would have been. Um, and governors like to take credit for that. You know, they say, oh, we're saving you money, even though you still have to spend that amount, but right. it's less than it, than it would have been. Right. So The so governor's initiative uh, more recently last year was to say we're going to take steps backwards. You know, we're going to mandate on the city that it, that it pay more, which, you know, again, I would characterize as backwards. It's a less fair 
uh, way to pay for how we as a state take care of people who are less fortunate right. than we are. Not well, so, so the same yeah. governor who enacted the freeze on the local costs yeah. then said, well, maybe New York City could begin to pick some of that up. And right. that, I think uh, there was a pretty effective coalition of people who said that doesn't make any sense and is really unfair and, and beat that reform yeah. back. And actually, you know, you can see the, the line now in New York City's budget is just the same number going forward, whereas once upon a time, it was one of the big growth drivers in the yeah. city's budget. Yeah. Um, but impacts all localities, I think. You know, it's a yes. positive fiscal impact. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it is, it's a big issue for New York City, uh, but it's also a big issue around the rest of the state, mm -hmm. too. The, it's paid, the local share is paid for by counties. And, you know, in many counties, a major chunk of their revenue is just devoted to giving the money to the state to pay for their share of Medicaid, and it is um, not popular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's... let's Yeah, let's shift to sort of some of the federal issues. Everybody is worried about how the federal budget, federal tax policy, you know, attempts to repeal the ACA, how that will affect Medicaid, but also New York City health and hospitals. Um, and one of the sort of signature issues under the ACA was this expansion right, of Medicaid that was subsidized by the federal government. Mm -hmm. Did New York benefit from that more or less than other places? How did the ACA um, affect New York more generally? Well, the Affordable Care Act, you know, a major objective w was to get more people to have health insurance. And there were two principal instruments for that. One was to expand Medicaid so that more people would be covered. It was done at the option of states. Um, you know, and the other was to create these marketplaces and to subsidize the purchase of private insurance by people who were better off than the Medicaid income eligibility thresholds. The part of it that was the Medicaid expansion was of more limited benefit to New York than a lot of other places because, as we were saying before, New York had already taken advantage of the maximum sort of um, enrollment potential of Medicaid. So the increment um, for the number of people covered through Medicaid was still substantial, but not as great as it was in a number of other states that jumped with the, the ACA Medicaid expansion, Affordable Care Act. Um, it, did, it did have some fiscal benefit. People, didn't, people who were, in a sense, already covered got a greater federal share because the Affordable Care Act provided a, a, an increased federal share for newly covered people. So it provided some fiscal benefit to the state through the Medicaid expansion. It did provide benefits, again, um, through the other part, the subsidized private purchase for people. New York set up a, um, a health healthcare marketplace where people could enroll. It was, um, it was done well, and it was a, it was a contrast to the federal mm -hmm. example where the federal government was running it for states, and they didn't quite get it off the ground very smoothly. New York's got off the ground pretty smoothly. It was given As, an innovation prize by a certain good government it, it, group. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's, um, it, that's been, been working, and people have been signing up in, in, in plans through, the, through that marketplace and getting the subsidies. And the money was also used for the essential plan that we talked about before, which, again, had f substantial fiscal benefits for the state because it really was covering people who weren't Medicaid eligible, often because of their uh, immigration status. So the state was paying for them with 100% state dollars, and now they were able to use this cost reduction money, federal money, to pay what had been a state share. So there, was a, there were lots of fiscal benefits as well as coverage benefits for people. So if you're Jason Helgerson now, what is worrying you about what is, you know, what you see occurring on the federal landscape and the political dynamics? 
Um, well, some of it seems to be resolved, but I think you, um, you, you should worry about, uh, you know, they didn't out and out repeal the Affordable Care Act, but they have taken away the individual mandate, uh, which said that people had to buy or, or, or pay a fine. I think that is going to have repercussions for the people who are benefiting by the subsidized purchase of private insurance because what you're going to get is the withdrawal of relatively healthy people or people who think they're going to stay healthy uh, from that market, which means the rates go up for other people. We don't know the magnitude of that effect, but it's not going to be good. I have to say, go you know, when that was part of the tax reform bill, I feel like it, slid, it did slide under the radar, even though the president was very boisterous about being excited about that repeal of the individual mandate as part of it. Mm-hmm. It's gotten, I think, little attention, as you said, Chuck. We're not, we don't know no, what the fallout will be yet. We have to wait and see. And that's the case with so much of the federal tax right. bill, especially here in New York. But of course, there's just so much going on that not everything can get that much mm-hmm. attention. But boy, I, I did, you know, it caught me a little bit by surprise mm-hmm. that they had put that in there. And then it's barely been discussed, as far as yeah. I've seen. Yeah, I, we'll I, I think, to, we'll and to, to the extent it's been discussed, people have sort of tried to, to minimize the effect. I think they've said, oh, well, some, some, a lot of those people aren't in any way now, and they won't, but remains to be seen. Yeah. I think it is something to keep our eye on and to be worried about. I do um, wonder if some of the fact that there's been an individual mandate has changed the culture a little bit in New York, around the country. Again, mm-hmm. this is maybe a little bit of, like, psychological... Um, mm-hmm brainstorming here, but just in terms of how people think about whether they should have yeah. health insurance or not. I don't think that means at all that there won't be people who drop it. Of course, there'll be some number. Mm-hmm. We need to see what, what that'll yeah. be. Yeah, it, it will be, um, you would think, uh, have a particularly strong effect among people for whom that health insurance premium, even though it's been subsidized, is still a substantial chunk of their income. I think lower wage workers are going to say, I'll take the risk. Um, and in some ways, it, you could argue it's a sensible risk, um, A, because most people don't have big major expenses, but also the way the Medicaid program works is if you're in that um, sort of lower income but above Medicaid threshold and you get seriously sick, you have an automobile accident and you end up in the hospital, the eligibility provisions allow you to, quote, spend down, and so the amount you pay towards whatever bills you have or the amounts you're being billed get subtracted from your income. and you, So many people can spend down to Medicaid eligibility and do that. And so when you, if you get admitted to the hospital and you don't have insurance, the hospital will help you get Medicaid so they can collect for, for Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something you want to do. And it also, if you don't have the insurance, you'll tend not to go for your physical, sure. maybe not take care of those chronic conditions, which isn't good for you. So... I'm not arguing that people should walk away from health insurance, but I think there's a calculation that people can make that that could lead them to say, it's a risk I'm willing to take. And as you said, people who are relatively healthy or think they will stay, the people in the 26 Mm -hmm. to 35 range, we might see some of that um, uh, dropping. So why don't we, in our last few minutes here, uh, talk a little bit about H&H, the city's public uh, hospital system. Um, where, you know, in your estimation, um, 
what happens to the med, you know, what, where are we at in terms of the Medicaid effects on H and H? And obviously, you know, we've touched on this a little bit and we touched a little bit on it last week, uh, on the podcast with Mara Gay talking about the mayor's budgeting, uh, the city's public health hospital system is in pretty tough financial shape. Um, where do we stand? Well, I think they still stand in pretty bad financial shape. Uh, if this Senate deal that's being talked about goes through and the cuts in the disproportionate share money are postponed for another couple of years, they've, you know, they've got a, got a reprieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but it's, it's temporary. You know, it, it, eventually this is going to happen, or at least one would think it would. Um, so health and hospitals are still in financial trouble, but, a, you know, a big uh, cause of that trouble in the disappearance of the dish money has been postponed. So that will help. But they still lose money. You know, they're they're, they're literally losing, it goes to about $2 billion a year uh, in the out years. You can't go on like that forever. Um, So then you say, well, why do they lose money? Um, And in fact, the Affordable Care Act has expanded the number of people eligible, the amount of uh, uncompensated care, people who don't have insurance that they have to take care of, is, has gone down modestly. It was low relative to other places because of the generous Medicaid program before, but health and hospitals picks up a, a very disproportionate share of the uncompensated care relative to the voluntary system. The Health and Hospitals Corporation is about um, 20% of all the acute care beds in the city uh, the other 80% being in the in the voluntary sector, but it's probably closer to about 40% of the uncompensated care, generally on the inpatient side, and even more uh, with respect to outpatient clinics. So they're carrying that burden. So they lose money because of uncompensated care, and then they lose money because most of the people who have insurance who are using health and hospitals, their insurance is Medicaid. The Medicaid rates, as we talked about before, are generous relative to other states, but don't always cover full costs. So, you know, you lose money on your Medicaid, on some of your your Medicaid patients. And so, as the old joke goes, you can't make it up on volume. You know, you take Mm -hmm. care of more people, you just lose more money. Um, It's dealing with that issue, and it, it varies among the institutions as to how much they lose on each Medicaid patient. And I think the, the big challenge in managing health and hospitals is going to be getting the costs closer to the Medicaid rate. You can say the Medicaid rate's too low, but you can also say the costs are too high. And the challenge is going to be managing the costs so that you don't lose money on the insured patients you have. Yeah, so CBC is going to continue to work on mm-hmm. H&H and examine the fiscal issues there. Chuck is also supervising um, really great work on um, some of the reforms of the MRT and is working uh, specifically on the health homes too. So there's a lot more forthcoming from CBC on all of these issues. Great. And in the meantime, um, I pointed out before that CBC has some facts about Medicaid um, from late 2016 that folks can look at in terms of some data and some really just clear, helpful graphs and charts. And then Chuck also co-authored a 2016 report, What Ails Medicaid in New York?, very informative, very helpful for us in, in prepping for this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks can look at that on the CBC website as well. And down the road, we'll probably talk about um, especially H&H again and maybe have try to have on the new CEO there who, who just came in and, and maybe uh, also have you back, Chuck. So 
Thank you for this discussion. Chuck Brescher, CBC's Senior Advisor for Health Policy. We appreciate all the, the time and the thoughts. You're welcome. And we should also point out that with respect to the new head of health and hospitals, that CBC put out a, a blog post called Lessons from La La Land, which was about what to what extent replicating what uh, Dr. Katz did in California is possible in New York. Check it out. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you.